This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. Hello and welcome to a special episode of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I'm not just taking another break from my coverage of the series, I'm taking a break from the Vietnam War entirely to cover a work of literature that is about an entirely different war. That war, war is World War I, and the novel is Eric Maria Remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front. Now... You may be asking why I chose to cover this novel on a podcast that is about the Vietnam War and a Vietnam War comic. Well, there are a few reasons. The first is that I've taught the novel to high school sophomores, so it's something I'm very familiar with. Second, as a result, I'm keeping this novel's in- I keep seeing this novel's influence in the stories Doug Murray is telling in the Nam, whether or not it's intentional. And to be honest, this is the archetype for the modern war novel. Finally, The day this airs marks the 100th anniversary of the official start of the First World War. To give you a little bit of context here, and trust me, I'm going to be brief, I'm going to talk a little bit about the build-up and beginning of the First World War, which informs some of the flashbacks at the beginning of the novel, so we know where things have their start. I'll talk about the novel's author, Eric Maria Remarque. I'll give a synopsis and review of the novel. I will then take a look at the film adaptation as well as the 1979 television movie adaptation. And then I will wrap up by discussing other works that are related to or tangential to All Quiet on the Western Front, such sort of poetry, which you'll hear more or less throughout the episode as well. Along the way, you'll hear several songs from the World War I era as well as others that were inspired by the war. For instance, the song that you heard at the opening of the episode is Metallica's One from the album And Justice for All, a song that was inspired by the Dalton Trumbo movie Johnny Got His Gun. That film is the story about a World War I soldier who is injured in battle and finds himself completely incapacitated to the point where he can only communicate by nodding his head and tapping out Morse code. The song's lyrics reflect the film, and the video actually incorporates footage of the film, mixing it in with Metallica performing the song in an abandoned factory or something. It's the 80s. But it, the video is posted to the show notes so you can see it for yourself, but I, I, do, I have played this video and discussed the song with my students when I've taught the novel, and I thought it was more than appropriate for the intro to the episode. The song, by the way, was a big deal for the band. It gained them quite a bit of recognition and was their first top 40 hit, peaking at number 35 in the Billboard charts. It won them a Grammy for Best Heavy Metal Performance in 1990. Now, as for the historical context of this novel. I know this is something I'd usually do after a synopsis of an issue of the NOM, but because I've got so much to cover for the episode, I thought leading with the history would work this time around. The First World War, which is originally known as the Great War, 
did officially begin on July 28, 1914, when the Austro-Hungarian army fired its first shots in their invasion of Serbia, which was a response to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand exactly one month earlier in Sarajevo. And, well, I've got to get this terrible music pun out of the way, so here we go. Anyway, to really understand how one assassination led to a world war, you have to go back further than just a month. In fact, you have to go back several years to the 19th century and what was basically an age of countries in Europe gobbling up territory across the globe, as well as building up their own personal arsenals and making pacts and alliances with one another. These alliances were one of the biggest contributing factors to the scale of the war. You had on one side the Allied powers of Britain, France, and Russia, and eventually the United States. And on the other side, you had Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and the Central, which were the central powers. All these countries go to war with one another, not because of the assassination Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but because of all the pacts they have with one another about who will go to war with whom if there is an event or an incident or an attack. When Yugoslavian nationalists assassinate the Archduke on the 28th of June, Austria-Hungary began hostilities with Serbia, and that led to all the various alliances that had been formed during the previous decades coming into play. Basically, by the time Austria-Hungary attacked Serbia, the rest of the powers went all in, and you had a state of total war. Now, at first, it didn't seem that the war was going to last too long or be too harsh, or at least that was the impression that many young men who were literally marching off to war with their heads hell high were given. But while things were going pretty quickly at first, as Germany marched quickly into France, the French weren't about to give up without a fight and pushed back, resulting in an enormous line of trenches that went from the North Sea to the French border with Switzerland. This was known as the Western Front, and this is where much of our novel takes place. The war itself was mostly a stalemate from 1915 to 1917. Millions die, but nobody seems to gain any ground. In the East, Russia literally drops out in 1917 when the Tsar is overthrown and the Russian Revolution begins. Also in 1917, the Brits and French get some help due to the official entry of the United States, who provide enough force to help their allies push back against the Germans. And on November 11, 1918, Germany surrenders. The book will take us roughly from 1916 until about the end of the war, and as you'll see, we get a very clear picture of what the war was like, at least from the German point of view. The reason for this is that the book's author, Eric Maria Remarque, was himself German. He served in the German army during the war and was wounded in battle on the 31st of July, 1917. He wound up spending the rest of the war nursing his injuries. After the war, he taught for a time, but then began his career as a writer. His breakthrough novel was All Quiet on the Western Front, which he wrote in 1927 and published in 1929. The book is a realistic look at the war and was a huge hit, being translated into several languages. 
It was also burned in the Nazi book burnings of the 1930s as Hitler and the Nazi party and many Germans considered it denigrating and essentially, essentially not German enough. It, in fact, was one of the first books banned by the Nazis. Remark did escape Nazi Germany further persecution because he spent most of his time in Switzerland and the United States, which is where he spent most of World War II, and he died in 1970 in Switzerland. This book is not necessarily a one-hit wonder, as he had other books, including The Road Back, which is a semi-sequel to All Quiet, but it's definitely his most well-known. But why? What makes it, as the book cover says, the greatest war novel of all time? Well, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I will have my synopsis. Up to mighty London came an Irish man one day, as the streets are paved with gold, sure everyone was gay. Long, long way to the forest, but my 
That was It's a Long Way to Tipperary, a song that wasn't written for the war but that became popular during the war because of its use by British regiments as a marching song. In fact, there was a verse added to the song during the war that made references to the girls in France teaching Patty how to kiss. In our modern popular culture, it's known probably best for being sung at the end of the final episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Before I give my synopsis, I should warn you that the synopsis is pretty heavy. That means I'm giving away quite a bit of what happens. So if you've never read the book and you are interested in reading the book, part of me says go and read the book and then come back and listen to the episode. Or in the very least, just consider this a major, major, major spoiler warning. So All Quiet on the Western Front opens with the epigraph that I read at the beginning of the episode. And I'll read again now. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, at least of all an adventure, for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This is basically Remark's thesis statement, his opening. What is his opening to the book? But it's his introduction, his thesis statement, or at least that's what I tell my students because it's the subject of one of the questions I've put on the paper assignment, but because they have to assess whether or not Remark stays true to his word throughout the book. And does he? Um, Well, he doesn't start off with action and adventure. In fact, chapter one opens five miles away from the front after our main character and his friends have returned from their latest mission, where they have suffered serious losses. That main character is Paul Balmer, who back in his civilian days was a student and an aspiring writer, and most of his friends at the front were friends from his school days. We're introduced to quite a number of them, and I'll get to them as we go along, as they become central to various points of the plot. What we should know is that the book has a structure that, while linear, isn't so much plot-driven as it is character-driven. Paul narrates the book, and for the first three chapters, we will be with him behind the front lines and flashing back to days before combat. Once we hit chapter 4 and begin to see action, we will progress through more in the war in an almost episodic structure until the book's end, which takes place near the end of the war. In the first chapter, the guys argue with the chef over extra rations of food, and then they spend some time pooping in a field. No, really. And this is something I have to point out to my students whenever I teach the book. After dinner is over, the guys grab some cards, grab some boxes, sit on them in a field while answering the call of nature and socializing. It's a weird scene to those of us who aren't used to seeing those sorts of things, but to them it's completely normal. Moreover, Remark uses it to show the personality of these boys as people instead of one-dimensional soldiers. It establishes the idea that that war is often long periods of nothing to do with short spikes in action. We do see that quite a bit in the Nam as well. Juxtaposed with this comical moment is the very real problem of their friend Kemrick, who was dying in a hospital because he was wounded and had to have his legs amputated. Mueller accompanies Paul to the hospital, while Paul agonizes over his friend's impending and eventual death. In fact, the second time we see Paul Kemrick, Kemrick dies right in front of him. Mueller's more concerned with obtaining Kemrick's boots, because they're nice boots. He gets them. Paul gets the privilege of having to tell Kemrick's mother about what happened to her son, which will come up later. Another part of Chapter 1 and Chapter 2, which are mixed in with moments of comic relief in Kemmerich's death, are flashbacks to Paul's introduction to the army. Their schoolmaster, Kanterich, had spent much of the last days of their time with them preaching about how important it was to the fatherland, and how it was their duty to sign up and fight. 
This type of indoctrination worked because they marched en masse to the recruiter's office, and they are sent en masse to training where they are under the direction of Corporal Himmelstoss, a short man who has let the power of being a drill instructor go to completely to his head. Paul details some of the drills he had to practice and some of the punishments that Himmelstoss had to deal out, including one particularly harsh way to deal with bedwetting. One of the men in the unit, Jodden, wet the bed so badly, so Himmelstoss bunked him with another bedwetter, and every night their places in the bunk would switch. I think Himmelstoss thought this would encourage the two to give the habit of bedwetting, but it did nothing except make the two men hate the corporal. We then get into chapter 3. We meet one of the most significant supporting characters of the novel, and that is Kitsinski or Kat. He winds up serving as a father figure for Paul because he is older, and he brings a wiser perspective to the war than most of Paul and his friends, who are really still kids. Kat is also adept at finding food, which comes in handy quite a number of times when the men are headed to combat. During chapter 3, the guys sit around again and talk about why the war is even going on, and this is done to contrast against the bright-eyed boys who signed up for the war about two years prior. Kat's answer is simple. Give them all the same grub and the same pay, and the war would be over in a day. Nobody disagrees with this, as they all seem to think that the poor kids like them are fighting a rich man's war. One of them suggests that wars be fought in arenas by generals and politicians, and eventually we get the final flashback to Himmelshaus, and how before they all left for the front, the boys got their revenge by jumping him, putting a blanket over his head, and beating the crap out of him. It was satisfying in a sense that they got revenge in their tormentor, even if some of them, Jodden for instance, don't think he's quite done with the man. This reflection, however, is short-lived as soon as it will be time to return the front to the front. Chapter 4 is where we finally see some action as the troops are sent to the front to lay down wire, and it's though most of the chapters 4, 5, and 6 where we see a fair amount of fighting and violence. Paul and his friends, having fought in the war for two years now, are pretty used to the action they're seeing. They don't particularly enjoy it, but he does give us the sense that they have all developed particular instincts that are important for their own survival. This is contrasted with a new recruit who is utterly terrified of everything to the point where he messes himself. Paul feels bad for him, and he helps the kid out. Later on, another rookie is found in the aftermath of a bombardment, and Paul and Kat debating putting him out of his misery, but are not given the chance because a superior officer shows up. It's an excellent juxtaposition of newbie versus veteran, and one of several small episodes in these chapters which are full of quite a bit of violence, but are devoid of the enemy. One of the things that's important to note about much of the novel is that there aren't many instances in which Paul comes face to face with an enemy soldier. The French, English, and eventually the Americans are all mentioned, of course, but it seems that the enemy is mostly represented by artillery shells. Furthermore, the conditions in the trenches are as much of an enemy as the shells they're facing. Paul vividly describes killing lice and how important that is, and there is a good portion of chapter 6 that details the rats. Uh, This portion in particular gross, to be honest, as Paul describes the rats as huge beasts who take every last available piece of food that the boys have with them, and at one point even devoured two large cats and a dog. This is the scene that always gets me, by the way, because as much as I can deal with images of battlefield carnage that include intestines hanging out and limbs being blown off, the description of the rats in the trenches actually makes me cringe. There's some comic relief in these chapters as well, as Remarked knows that audience cannot sustain constant shelling and the horrors of war and does need a breather from time to time. One is Kaczynski demonstrating how great he is at finding food, 
is we find some geese and the boys cook them up and eat them. It's one of Cat's more notable character traits, and it'll come into play hilarious effect later in the novel. The other is Himmelstoss has been called up. Apparently he was too harsh on the wrong person, and his punishment has been sent to the front. This gives Jodden much pleasure, and he gives his former drill sergeant a nice mooning. Some days in the clink be damned. The action in the sixth chapter is especially horrific, as our characters are sent over the walls of the trenches and into no man's land, while enduring round after round of shelling. As with many battles in the trenches during the First World War, the fighting resolves in very little beyond no man's land being littered with dead. Paul takes the time to espouse on how during these times of combat they are wild animals, fighting based on instinct without thought. Paul describes gruesome injuries and deaths, heads being blown off, for instance, and in the middle of all this carnage reflects on how his youth has been completely stripped away from him. Their stillness is the reason why these memories of former times do not awaken desire so much as sorrow, a vast and apprehensible melancholy. Once we had such desires, but they return not. They are past. They belong to another world that is gone from us. In the barracks they called forth a rebellious, wild craving for their return. For then they were still bound to us. We belonged to them and they to us, even though we were already absent from them. They appeared in the soldiers' songs which we sang as we marched between the glow of the dawn and the black silhouettes of the forest to drill on the moor. They were a powerful remembrance that was in us and came from us. But here in the trenches they are completely lost to us. They arise no more. We are dead and they stand remote on the horizon. They are a mysterious reflection, an apparition that haunts us, that we fear and love without hope. They are strong and our desire is strong, but they are unattainable and we know it. And even if those scenes of our youth were given back to us, we would hardly know what to do. The tender secret influence that passed from them into us could not rise again. We might be amongst them and move in them. We might remember and love them and be stirred by the sight of them. But it would be like gazing at the photograph of a dead comrade. Those are his features. It is his face. And the days we spent together take on a mournful life in the memory, but the man himself it is not. We can never again regain the old intimacy with those scenes. It was not any recognition of their beauty and their significance that attracted us, but the communion, the feeling of a comradeship with the things and events of our existence, which cut us off and made the world of our parents a thing incomprehensible to us. For then we surrendered ourselves to events that were lost in them, and the least little thing was enough to carry us down the stream of eternity. Perhaps it was only the privilege of our youth, but as yet we recognized no limits and saw nowhere an end. We had that thrill of expectation in the blood which united us with the course of our days. Today we would pass through the scenes of our youth like travelers. We are burnt up by hard facts. Like tradesmen, we understand the distinctions, and like butchers, necessities. We are no longer untroubled, we are indifferent. We might exist there, but should we really live there? We are forlorn like children and experienced like old men. We are crude and sorrowful and superficial. I believe we are lost. Chapter 6 ends with us getting to see Himmelstoss in action, which isn't much. For all of his alpha dog posturing, the former drill sergeant is scared out of his mind and he takes cover in a shell hole. When Paul goes to get him out, Himmelstoss growls at him like an animal and will not budge. Paul begins to beat him about the head and get him to move, and it's no use. Eventually, when a superior officer comes by and yells for the men to press on, Himmelstoss snaps back into action and heads off. 32 men returned from this attack down from 150 that were in the unit before the start of Chapter 1. 
At the beginning of Chapter 7, Himmelstoss makes peace with the boys, arranging for them to have kitchen patrol with him. It's not punishment, because this allows them to have better food than the poor rations most of his comrades are getting. Chapter 7 and 8 are both downtime for Paul and the audience. We don't see any action. Instead, we have more character development. Most importantly, we continue to see what is basically a degradation of Paul's character over the course of the novel. Toward the end of chapter 7, Paul goes home on leave, and we learn that his mother is sick and probably dying of cancer, and his father seems to be focused on showing off his son to his friends. And all they really do is drink beer and tell Paul that he knows nothing about the war, and they know what the German army should be doing. Later on, Paul will return to the base and watch over some Russian POWs who seem to treat one another better than some of his fellow Germans treat themselves. He even bonds with them a little bit and shares some of the potato cakes that his mother gave him. But the lowest points of these two chapters come in chapter 7. First, there's the novel's only sex scene, which actually has a bit of of a comedic bit to it. Paul, Lear, Crop, and Jodden spot three cute French girls near the river that is adjacent to their base. They're local villagers, and they invite the three of them over that evening. Knowing that four guys and three girls does not an equal equation make, the guys get Jodden pissed drunk and wait until he passes out before heading over to the girl's house. Now, the problem there is that the girls live on the other side of the river, and the guys can't exactly walk over there because the guards to their camp will turn them back. So they decide to strip down, hide the food they've brought in their boots, and wade through the river holding their boots over their heads. Hence, the French girls greet three nearly naked visitors to their house. Each of the guys does get a girl, and Crop and Lear go off to separate rooms in the house and have very little trouble with the sex. Paul, on the other hand, finds himself getting upset while with this girl because he thinks about all the sexual experience that he has had, and it's been with prostitutes. The war essentially has taken away anything that would have been romantic about sex. And considering that at this point he's about 19 or 20, that's very, very sad. Yes, at 19 or 20, most guys in our current culture are horny doofus college guys and might not necessarily be looking for romance. But I don't know many of my how many of my friends were visiting brothels on a regular basis. So this is not just a lost but a ruined innocence. Something taken from him by the war and the culture of the war. Something also taken from Paul, by the way, uh, way back at the beginning of the book, was one of his best friends, Kemmerich. And at the end of chapter 7, Paul has the unfortunate duty of going to Kemmerich's house and telling his mother about how his friend died. Paul lies to her. He says that Kemmerich was shot in the heart and died instantly. She calls him a liar, but he sticks to his guns, no pun intended. And it's not without his fair share of guilt, though. He feels guilty for lying to her. Between his lying to Kemmerich's mother, his father's working very hard and inability to talk honestly to him about the war, and his own mother's failing health, Paul says, I should not have come home on leave. Chapter 9 opens with an appearance by the Kaiser himself. As the German premier visits Paul's unit for an inspection, but then turns back to the front, where they are once again sent over the walls for an attack. Paul admits to himself that he is rusty and having been away for so long, he nearly misses getting killed. He's nearly killed a couple of times. Eventually, old habits and instincts slip back into place and Paul finds his footing on the battlefield. At one point, he comes face to face with a French soldier and when that man jumps into his shell hole, Paul attacks the man and he stabs him. But since the bombardment is so constant, Paul has nowhere to go after that. So he winds up spending several hours in the hole with the French soldier, who dies very slowly. At this point, he feels sympathetic toward his enemy, and he begins to save this guy's life. When the French soldier actually dies, Paul rifles through his things and uncovers a wallet. 
His name is Gerard Duval. He was a printer and he has a family. Saddened by the fact that this man might as well be him, Paul vows to make things up to him, send money to his family so that his death won't be entirely in vain. It's the only time in the book where we as the reader come face to face with any of the enemy, with the exception of POWs in an earlier chapter. And Remarks seems to do this in order to show that there weren't many differences between many of the young men fighting the war. If the book were an adventure, I'm sure he would have made the enemy seem more evil, more ruthless, as propaganda often does. But he chooses to humanize the enemy, and in fact dehumanizes some of the other soldiers. The scene immediately following Duval's death, for instance, shows army snipers taking out targets on the other side of the trench and making a game of how many kills they have. I mention this book as a character study in the way of a soldier and his deterioration as the war goes on. We see this in chapters 10 and 11 as we build to the novel's climax. Paul will get more and more bitter and more and more depressed with this eventually ending, with his expressing how he feels utterly lost. Chapter 10, however, though, opens with one of the funniest, most slapsticky portions of the entire novel. In fact, it's almost like the comedic climax of the book. The guys are sent to guard a weapons depot in an abandoned town. Cat, being Cat, finds food. In fact, he finds two like suckling, suckling pigs. So the boys decide they're going to have a feast. And since they have access to the houses in this abandoned town, they decide to use the kitchens for cooking the two suckling pigs, and Paul uses one house to cook potato cakes. The smoke from their ovens winds up being spotted by enemy observation balloons, so the enemy immediately begins shelling the town. Instead of making a break for it in the basement of a building, the guys all decide to finish cooking. We get visuals of Paul ducking shell fire while trying to flip potato cakes, two of the guys carrying the platters with the pigs across town, and Paul reaching safety by tumbling down a flight of stairs, with a tray of potato cakes held closely, and he only manages to save them all, too. The whole sequence ends with Paul and Crop sitting in nice armchairs in the middle of a four-post bed, which is on top of a lorry rolling them out of the destroyed town smoking cigars. It's the type of scene that, I don't know, for some reason I would have expected to see, like, George Papard from the A-Team in there for some reason. It's good stuff, though. It is a really, really great, great sequence. And it's all contrasted, and this is, this is one of the great things about the book, it's all contrasted with the second half of the chapter, which is an extended scene in a wartime hospital. Paul and Crop wind up both getting injured, although Crop's hurt way worse than Paul, and they're sent to a hospital away from the front. While they're there... Paul makes enough of a recovery to warrant an eventual return from the front, but Crop will more than likely lose his leg. There's some funny moments in the hospital scenes. For instance, the guys in the ward run interference while one patient, Lewandowski, has sex with his visiting wife. But for the most part, it's all about the pain that these men are going through. Crop's continuing despair, which eventually leads to him declaring that if they take his leg, he's going to kill himself. At the end of the chapter, Paul leaves for the front. He says something like, parting from my friend Albert Crop was sad, but you get used to those things in the war. He does return to his comrades at the beginning of chapter 11, and the time frame speeds up with Paul offering the tales of how his comrades began dying one by one. Now we're in late 1917, early 1918, and Germany is really starting to lose the war and lose the war quickly. Then at one point, Paul and Kat are out in the field and Kat gets hit. Paul hoists Kat on his back and carries him all the way to the medical tent, saying that he'll be okay. When he arrives, the doctors wonder why he put forth all that effort. I stagger on doggedly and piteously at the last reach the dressing station. There I drop down on my knees, but still have enough 
strength to fall on the side where Cat's sound leg is. After a few minutes, I straighten myself up again. My legs and hands tremble. I have trouble in finding my water bottles to take a pull. My lips tremble as I try to think, but I smile. Cat is saved. After a while, I begin to sort out the confusion of voices that falls on my ears. You might have spared yourself that, says an orderly. I look at him without comprehending. He points to Cat. He is stone dead. I do not understand him. He's been hit on the shin, I say. The orderly stands still. That as well. I turn around. My eyes are still dull. The sweat breaks out on me again. It runs over my eyelids. I wipe it away and peer at Cat. He lies still. Fainted, I say quickly. The orderly whistles softly. I know better than that. He's dead. I'll lay any money on that. Shake my head. It's not possible. Only ten minutes ago I was talking to him. He's fainted. Cat's hands are warm. I pass my hand under his shoulders in order to rub his temples with some tea. I feel my fingers become moist. As I draw them away from his head, they are bloody. You see, the orderly whispers once more through his teeth. On the way without my having noticed it, Cat has caught a splinter in the head. There is just one little hole, but it must have been a very tiny stray splinter. But it, it has sufficed. Cat is dead. Slowly, I get up. Would you like to take his paybook and his things? The Lance Corporal asks me. I nod and he gives them to me. The orderly is mystified. You're not related, are you? No, we're not related. No, we are not related. Do I walk? Have I feet still? I raise my eyes. I let them move around and turn myself with them. One circle, one circle, and I stand in the midst. All is as usual. Only the militiaman Stanislaus Kaczynski has died. Then I know nothing more. This is the climax of the novel. Chapter 12 is clearly falling action and resolution, with Paul reflecting on his life as it is now. It's only about three pages long or so, and I'm going to go ahead and read the entire thing. It is autumn. There are not many of the old hands left. I am the last of seven fellows from our class. Everyone talks of peace and armistice. All wait. If it again proves an illusion, then they will break up. Hope is high. I, it cannot be taken away again without an upheaval. If there is not peace, then there will be revolution. I have 14 days rest because I have swallowed a bit of gas. In the little garden, I sit the whole day long in the sun. The armistice is coming soon. I believe it now too. Then we will go home. Here my thoughts stop and will not go any farther. All that meets me, all that floods over me are but feelings. Greed of life, love of home, yearning for the blood, intoxication of deliverance, but no aims. Had we returned home in 1916 out of the suffering and the strength of our experience, we might have unleashed a storm. Now if we go back, we will be weary, broken, burnt out, rootless, and without hope. We will not be able to find our way anymore. And men will not understand us. For the generation that grew up before us, though it has passed these years with us already, had a home and a calling. Now it will return to its old occupations and the war will be forgotten. And the generation that has grown af after us will be strange to us and push us aside. 
We will be superfluous even to ourselves. We will grow older. A few will adapt themselves. Some others will merely submit, and most will be bewildered. The years will pass by, and in the end we shall fall into ruin. Perhaps all this that I think is merely melancholy and dismay, which will fly away as the dust, when I stand once again beneath the poplars and listen to the rustling of their leaves. It cannot be that it has gone, the yearning that made our blood unquiet, the unknown, the perplexing, the oncoming things, the thousand faces of the future, the melodies from dreams and from books, the whispers and divinations of women. It cannot be that this has vanished in bombardment, in despair, in brothels. Here the trees show gay and golden, the berries of rowan stand red among the leaves, country roads run white out to the skyline, and the canteens hum like beehives with rumors of peace. I stand up. I am very quiet. Let the months and years come, they can take nothing from me. They can take nothing more. I am so alone and so without hope, I can confront them without fear. The life that has borne me through these years is still in my hands and my eyes. Whether I have subdued it, I know not. But so long as it is there, it will seek its own way out, heedless of the will that is within me. Let me get to the novel's last page. He fell in October 1918, on a day that was so quiet and still on the whole front, that the army report confined itself to the single sentence, all quiet on the western front. He had fallen forward and lay on the earth as though sleeping. Turning him over, one saw that he could not have suffered long. His face had an expression of calm, as though almost glad the end had come. I first encountered this novel about six years ago. It was my first year of teaching 10th grade, and I was trying to find something for my class to read in the spring. There were several copies of this sitting around the book room, and I picked one up in November. The first few chapters took me a long time to read, but once I hit chapter 4, I remember not being able to put it down. In fact, I found myself becoming more and more interested in the First World War, and having taught it for six years now, I can confidently say this is one of my favorite books, and I completely understand why it has the reputation it does. In fact, a lot of tropes found in our modern war stories come from this novel. Then again, a lot of our modern concept of warfare comes from that particular war. Remark paces things well. He knows when the audience needs a breather and therefore inserts scenes to help us settle down after a particularly tense sequence. But he also keeps his word that this is not an adventure book. Paul, having been a student of writing, is an excellent choice for a narrator, although there are times when he does get a bit too contemplated and you wish he would just get to the point. But... It's not just Paul that makes the novel worth reading. Despite the fact that the many German names can get confusing at times, and you try to keep track of Krop, Kammer, Cantor, Kaczynski, Jod, Mueller, Dettering, and Hemmelstoss, <laughs> each of them has moments that make us root for them in some way or another, or at least sympathize with them for their place in this war, a war that seems pointless, especially when you consider its origin. Plus, all of the pointlessness and the depressing contemplation contained within the book clues us into the state of mind of Remark after the war, as well as the state of mind of many of the soldiers who were returning home and really had nowhere to go. This is a reason this generation is referred to as the Lost Generation in particular circles, and this novel is an excellent illustration of why. The blood and guts are well done, too. Like I said, we don't see very much of an actual enemy, as the enemy is really the constant bombardment and shelling. 
In fact, the enemy is war itself, and Remark doesn't pull any punches at that. In other words, this is one of the ultimate war-is-hell novels. And the reason that I set aside my look at the Nam for this episode is because All Quiet on the Western Front reaches very far, even into our comic book. I'm going to break right now, um, but, but not before reading a poem by Wilfred Owen, uh, who was a British soldier who served in the war and wrote some of the best, most vivid poetry about the war. Uh, I use this every year uh, with my students, whether or not I'm teaching All Quiet in the class, because it's one of the best examples of imagery I've ever heard. Here is the last laugh. Oh, Jesus Christ, I'm hit, he said, and died. Whether he vainly cursed or prayed, indeed, the bullets chirped. In vain, vain, vain. Machine guns chuckled, tut, 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 and the big gun guffawed. Another side, oh, mother, mother, dad, then smiled at nothing, childlike being dead. And the lofty shrapnel cloud leisurely jested fool, and the falling splinters tittered. My love, one moaned. Love languid seemed his mood till slowly lowered his whole face kissed the mud. And the bayonet's long teeth grinned. Rabbles of shells hooted and groaned. And the gas hissed. They were some on the front, the hillside. They were called in from the glen. And the country found them ready at the starting call for men. Let no tears add to their hardships as the soldiers pass along. And although your heart is breaking, make it sing this Oh. 
That was Keep the Home Fires Burning, another hit from the First World War era, a song specifically written to reference the war and the war effort. This version is sung by tenor John McCormick, who was a popular singer of his day, and uh, his version is one of the more notable versions of the song, which was written in late 1914 and became a hit in 1915. To me, it's reminiscent of the poetry of Edgar Guest, a poet who's known more for being a poet of the common man of sorts. Uh, he's derided, actually, in quite a number of literary circles because of his poetry's sincerity and appeal to a mass audience. This, granted, came from the fact that Guest was a journalist and he wrote a daily syndicated column. One of the more notable criticisms came from noted wit Dorothy Parker, who said, I'd rather fail my Wasserman test than read the poetry of Edgar Guest. The Wasserman test, by the way, is the test for syphilis. But in all sincerity, I bring up guests to share one of his poems as a way to show the other side of the coin here, to contrast what you heard before the break. This is The Things That Make a Soldier Great. The things that make a soldier great and send him out to die, to face the flaming cannon's mouth nor never question why, are lilacs by a little porch, the row of tulips red, the peonies and pansies too, the old petunia bed, the grass plot where his children play, the roses on the wall, tis these that make a soldier great, he's fighting for them all. Tis not the pump and pride of kings that make a soldier brave, tis not allegiance to the flag over him may wave. For soldiers never fight so well on land or on the foam, as when behind the cause they see their little place called home. In danger but that humble street whereon his children run, you make a soldier of the man who never bore a gun. What is it through the battle smoke the valiant soldier sees? The little garden far away, the budding apple trees, the little patch of ground back there, the children at their play, perhaps a tiny mound behind the simple church of gray. The golden thread of courage isn't linked to Castle Dome, but to the spot where it be, the humblest spot, called home. And now the lilacs bud again, and all is lovely there, and homesick soldiers far away, no spring is in the air. The tulips come to bloom again, the grass once more is green, and every man can see the spot where all his joys have been. He sees his children smile at him, he hears the bugle call, and only death can stop him now, he's fighting for them all. The poem's not half bad. Uh, Guest has a way of incorporating the rhythm of a march into the poem that does make it memorable, or at least gets your blood flowing, but doesn't leave that mark that Wilfred Owen's poetry does. What did leave a mark, which I realize is a bad segue, but just go with it, um, is the 1930 film version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which was directed by Lewis Millstone and stars Lou Ayers, who is also known for playing Dr. Kildare in several movies and had a long career in both film and television. Incidentally, he would, partially as a result of his experience shooting this film, become a pacifist and conscientious objector during the Second World War. He did, however, serve as a medic and earned a number of commendations for bravery in the field. But his views in the war did damage his career for a while, until Olivia de Havilland specifically asked to work with him in the movie The Dark Mirror in 1946. And from there, he did work steadily all the way up until his death in 1996. 
The film, All Quiet on the Western Front, won Best Picture and Best Director. In 1990, it was added to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry because of its significance in film history. It's one of the first films of the early sound era that made an impact, and it was the first, quote, talkie to win Best Picture. It, along with the novel, was actually banned in Nazi Germany because it did not show Germans in a favorable light. But, 84 years later, is the movie any good? I was going to recap the plot of the movie, which is, if you've listened to me talk about Eddie and the Cruisers or The Crow over on Pop Culture Affidavit, what I've done with films that are adaptations. But the original film version does not does stick pretty close to the plot of the novel. There are some scenes that are shuffled around and put in a different order than how they appear in the novel. But for the most part, Millstone wants to capture the fear of the novel and does so pretty well. Ayers' performance as Balmer is actually more subtle than I would have expected for a movie that is from the very beginning of the sound era, even though there are plenty of scenes where he and other actors are shouting in that old movie sort of way. He and the other actors, in fact, are very well cast. They look like the fresh-faced German boys you would have expected to see going off to war back in 1914, with a mix of pride and fear in their eyes. Cat is played by Louis Volheim, who looks like the type of grizzled old guy you'd expect to see, and other parts, Himmelstoss and Kantrick, for instance, are well cast. So in lieu of a plot review, I'll just run down five great points about the film and then offer a little bit of criticism. First, and this is more of an overall point than, say, a specific scene, the battle scenes are exquisitely done. Millstone does an excellent job at making the fighting seem like it's taking place in the actual trenches of the war as opposed to, say, a Hollywood backlot. It's the problem with a lot of more cheaply made war movies. Light and shadow are used to great effect. There's a fair amount of violence, and Ayers and his fellow castmates do get us to feel the gravity of the situation. Second is the lack of score. Unlike modern-day films, there is no orchestral score to All Quiet on the Western Front. There's some singing among the men here and there, but it seems to be something played during the film's final scene. Millstone, though, does a terrific job of giving this film a fair amount of silence. In fact, through many scenes, if there's any score, it's the constant sound of shells being fired and landing, which is a point Remark tried to bring home in the novel. And I'm all for a good film score, don't get me wrong. But there are times when allowing the movie to use natural sound to its advantage works, and they makes All Quiet on the Western Front incredibly haunting. Next are scenes where Paul is away from the war, especially the sequence that leads up to and includes his friend's encounter with the French girls. That sequence begins with Paul and Crop in a bar looking at a poster of a guy and a girl, getting very wistful about girls and romance, especially their youth. Something is brought home during the actual time with the girls because, as mentioned in the novel, Paul's really only had sexual experience with prostitutes in the brothels. So there's a certain amount of spoiledness that he feels. The other away from the war sequence that's excellent is Paul and Crop's time in the hospital, during which the actors really have to use their lines to convey the gravity of things, which is what had to be done during the romantic scene I just talked about as well. This movie came out right around the same time as The Hayes Code was enacted, so I'm not sure if it was produced under that particular microscope, but there definitely were decency standards, so gore and nudity weren't as common as they can be today, and that meant you had to get what was going on through the actual performances of the actors. Ayers and his castmates do an excellent job at that. Last two scenes are both death scenes, the first being Gerard Duval's and the second one being Katz. These are two of the most important death scenes in the novel, and Millstone sets them up to be just as important in his film. 
Eris, when he kills Duval, is just as wrought with anguish as his character is on the page, and he makes the same effort to save him, ultimately realizing how futile it is, and really ultimately realizing how futile all of this is. When Cat dies, which is one of the last scenes of the film, Paul is not so much in anguish as he is empty. When he puts his hand behind Cat's head and sees that there is blood there and Cat's dead, we don't get some sort of tantrum or him yelling, No! Or anything like that. He just takes Cat's paybook and walks silently out of the medical tent with his head hanging while the two medics just record the necessary information. It's incredibly heavy, and Eris makes you feel that the entire way. There are any criticisms I have with the film, most of them are minor, although I do have a major one, but I'm going to save that for the end of the next adaptation because I have the same quibble with the 1979 TV film version. Basically, I'll say that the movie takes a little getting used to it first, though. The opening is not particularly great. It took me a while for basically for me to adjust to the film. And it sounds ignorant of me to say this, but I think it's because it's just so old and I'm not used to films like this. But about 10 or 15 minutes in, it had me. I was invested and I enjoyed it. The only other minor issue I have is that there are times, much like in the book, where it's hard to keep track of all the characters. Paul, Mueller, Kropp, etc. are all young German men. They all look very similar. It's on purpose. But there are times when you have to remind yourself who's talking. But after finally watching this, after a number of years of meaning to, but never actually getting through the whole thing, I see why this is such an important film. And why it's considered such a cinematic achievement. In fact, it doesn't necessarily need to be remade or updated. Of course it was. And that's what we'll be taking a look at next. But I'm going to take a break, and before I do, here's another Wilfred Owen poem. Anthem for Doomed Youth. What passing bells for these who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty horizons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells, and bugles calling for them in their from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers, the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me. Everyone for liberty. Hurry right away, no delays out today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud of boys in line. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. 
That, of course, was over there, the famous song written by George M. Cohen. It's the version sung by Nora Bays, and the song itself winds up being a key plot point of the Jimmy Cagney movie, Yankee Doodle Dandy. The song, as well as Cohen's other songs, earned Cohen a Congressional Gold Medal from FDR in 1936. In 1979, Delbert Mann directed a television movie version of All Quiet on the Western Front, which starred some pretty recognizable names. Richard Thomas, best known for playing John Boy Walton, and who had then go on to play Bill Denbro in the 1990 movie version of It by Stephen King, played Paul Balmer. Ernest Borgnine played Kitsinski. Donald Pleasance, who is best known for playing Dr. Loomis in the Halloween films and Blofeld and You Only Live Twice, played Canterek. Ian Holm, who played Bilbo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings film, played portrayed Himmelstoss. Patricia Neal, who, uh, whom I recognized from The Day the Earth Stood Still, but who was in many other films, played Paul's mother. For a 70s television movie, it's actually not what you'd expect. The sets are very accurate, as are the costumes and the atmosphere of the film. In other words, while there's some points where this feels like it was shot in the 70s, it's only a few times. Overall, the movie does feel like it's taking place during the First World War. Richard Thomas, who at that point he was playing John Boy, brings a fair amount of innocence to the role, and he does his best to convey Paul's loss of innocence. Ernest Borgnine as Kaczynski is actually really good, uh, although the Accent kind of cracks me up because it's the furthest thing from German. But overall, um, without getting too much into it, it's available on Netflix to rent if you would like to, if you'd like to compare it to the other version. But they're both very good, and, and this is very good as well. It's worth checking out. Um, the one quibble that I said that I had with, with both films is the very last scene. In both films, um, we see Paul's death. And, and one of the things that I've always taken away from the novel is that we don't see Paul's death in the novel. As I read the last chapter there, it ends with his last thoughts, and then there's just an epilogue, not narrated by him, but narrated by somebody else and saying that he was sh- he, he fell. He didn't even say how he was killed. In, in the film, he's shot, 
but but and, and and the film scenes are powerful. There's this very powerful moment in the end of the 1930 version of him looking at a butterfly and getting a little too close and and, and getting shot and and it's supposed to, it's a very very dramatic scene. But part of me wonders, on some level, wouldn't it actually be more dramatic of of this sort of ending of of just of of his of his just sadness and then. Just um, put it on. Put that last bit. He fell in 1918, and and that the, the army report said all quiet on the Western Front. Put that like right on the screen or something, so that we don't even get to see him die. I mean that because that's how insignificant he is to the war, and that's the point where Mark was trying to make that he got shot and killed. This character that we've cared about for 12 chapters gets shot and killed, and in the end, it's not even reported because there's because as the book. This title is "It's All Quiet on the Western Front." Um, I would have in both of those movies. They do try to convey that, but I think that doesn't come across as well as it could. That being said, they're both very, very good movies. They're both very, very good adaptations. Uh, the '79 version does shuffle some things around as well. I think the 79 version takes its cues more from the original black and white version than the actual novel, which is why we get some scenes that aren't in the novel yet are there. But we get some other stuff that's not in the uh, in the 30, 1930s version. Uh, the, the visit from the Kaiser is done, and it's actually done historically accurately on some level because Kaiser Wilhelm had a deformed hand, so the actor playing Wilhelm actually walks with his arm the way that the Kaiser would have and it's little touches like that that make the that, that make the TV movie um, worth seeing but then again this was the sort of golden age of the TV movie the 1970s the movie and the miniseries were big so uh, like I said I, I, I would pick that up as well and that is it for the film versions I uh, will be back to wrap things up in a bit but before I go here is what is quite possibly one of the most famous poems of the First World War. This is In Flanders Fields by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce head amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields.
That is Elton John's song All Quiet on the Western Front, which was the last track on his album uh, Jump Up from 1982. It was released as a single but did not chart, and the orchestral finale was played by composer James Newton Howard. Now, I wanted to bring up one more thing in relation to the war in history and popular culture, which is America's greatest World War I hero. And that is the World War I flying ace who fought the Red Baron, Snoopy. The news had come out in the First World War. The bloody Red Baron was flying once more. The Allied command ignored all of his men and called on Snoopy to do it again. It was the night before Christmas, boarded below, when Snoopy went up in search of his Okay, I honestly don't have any analysis of Snoopy vs. the Red Baron or Snoopy's Christmas or any of the other songs. I honestly just wanted to play a clip of Snoopy's Christmas by the Royal Guardsmen uh, in the middle of July. But I will say that World War I is woefully undercovered in your average history class, and that's not necessarily Charles Schultz's fault. It's more because of our country's involvement in the war. It's not as lengthy nor as devastating as our allies was. We joined the war in 1917. The war was over in 1918. Now, I guess I will give credit here to uh, Mr. Smith, my 8th grade social studies teacher, and his nifty action-packed film strips. He drove the point home that World War I was more like the first act of a larger production of sorts that ends in 1945, and and he really went in-depth with the, the causes and results of the war. Yeah, like I said, we watched nifty action-packed film strips, but the amount I learned was quite a bit considering how little does tend to show up on the average curriculum. I will say, though, that reading All Quiet on the Western Front sparked a desire to learn more about the war, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode. So thanks for taking the time to explore the story with me. Uh, I really do hope you go to your local library and check out the book. Uh, Also take a look at either of the film versions. Uh, Both of them are available on Netflix, uh, the 1931 does make its way onto Turner Classic Movies every once in a while. Every once in a while, Netflix allows for streaming of those two uh, as well. I watched it on on uh, on Turner Classic Movies myself, by the way. And Charles Osgood does a really really good intro and and afterward to it. So if you can check that out, please do. As for me, I'll be back in two weeks with the nom number 26, back in country, and and back to our regular schedule. So. Once again, thank you very much, and take care, and thanks for listening.
You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.